Morning once again, everybody. <clears throat> if you would join me by taking your word of God and join me in Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. We're going to continue in the, our study of Philippians this morning. And the children are dismissed. By way of introduction, I'd like to go ahead and and, um, go back to uh, verse 1. Our our text this morning is is verses 9 through 11. Why don't we just reset the context a little bit. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ, Christ Jesus, to all the saints in, in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with with joy in my every prayer for you all, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. For For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all, because I have you in my heart, since both in my imprisonment And in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are all partakers of grace with me. For God is my witness, how I long for you you all with, with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and in all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ." having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Let's let's open a word of prayer. Our Father God, we do come to you. And again, Lord, we ask that uh, as we look at this passage of Scripture, we look at Paul's prayer, that, uh, Lord, we know by extension that is prayer to us as well. And, Lord, that is our desire, that we would remain faithful to you and that we would be so, and our lives would truly bring you all glory and honor. Amen. Now, Paul opens his letter. Again, we see that verses in verses 3, 4, and 5. He, that every time he prays for them, he thanks God for their participation in the gospel. Now, we, can, we know from later on in, in, this, in this letter, like in chapter 4, verses 13 through 18 that he's thanking them as he, uh, <clears throat> as he wraps up the, the letter. He, he thanks them for their participation and his financial participation. He says, I, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you have gone well to share with me in, the, in my affliction. And you yourselves also, you also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel after I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me in, in, in the matter of giving, and receiving, but you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Not, not that I seek the gift in itself, but I seek for profit, which is increases to your account. But I have received everything in full, and I have an abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, 
a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. So these folks, the Philippians, were in full support of Paul's ministry and uh, <clears throat> from the beginning. And you can read from, from everything that's said here, yes, for the financial support, but he was doing more than that. They were with him all the way in this. And it makes sense. Who was it that brought the gospel to the Philippians? It was Paul and his team. And so they responded well. And, and then you move down to verse 6 where he's, he's also thankful for their security and salvation. He knows where they're going. You know, I'm, very, I'm confident of this very thing that he who began a good work in you will perfect it again until the day of Christ Jesus. It's interesting, he who began that work. Again, that points to the fact that their salvation is a work of God. All right, we know from Scripture, uh, Ephesians 2, 8 and 10, for by grace you have been saved through faith, not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not a result of works that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that you should walk in them. And again, you can go to Romans 5, and then Titus, I love Titus, where he says, Titus 3, 4 through 7 says, But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not on the basis of our deeds, which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing and regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And he then goes on in verse 7 uh, <clears throat> and adds to that point where uh, in verse 7 he, uh, <clears throat> he says, it is only right for me to say this, I feel this way, and he goes on to say, because of all the support you've given me. And here's the thing. We know our salvation, and we can see verse 6 describes the security we have in our salvation. The security we have in our salvation. And verse 7 talks about the assurance we can have in our salvation. The security is just a theological reality, but assurance is something you, you have within you. It's, it's a feeling or a knowledge, and assurance comes from our service. If we, if people that do virtually nothing, you're not going to have assurance of salvation. You may not. People doubt your salvation because assurance of salvation comes by our working out our salvation. Remember, it says we are his workmanship and so created unto good works. And oftentimes Christians that don't find themselves doing any kind of ministry or serving God tend to doubt their salvation. And then Paul concludes his introductory statement by um, <clears throat> reminding them how deeply he loves them and desires to be with them in verse 8. Now, verse 9 through 11, which is our actually our text this morning, and I'm going to reread that, and, I, and this I pray that your, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and in all discernment, so that you may approve the things which are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now, here we are. In these three verses here, we, it contains the substance of Paul's prayer when he says, 
verse back, he says, always praying for you in verse 4. This was a prayer. It, it, it wasn't just thanksgiving, but this is what he prayed. And this is very typical of Paul. Um, <clears throat> as we know, Paul was definitely a man of prayer. Um, as a matter of fact, there are literally books written about the prayers of Paul. There are, there are books written about his prayers. He, he prayed so much. But, you know, that, and that's a key. That's a key to his successful ministry. And that's a key to any successful ministry. And I know probably most of us, um, you know, I know Dale Moody had a very big reputation of being a strong prayer. A man of prayer prayed a lot. Um, and I'll tell you, it's probably one area in a lot of us Christians' lives that we probably need to shore up. I know I do, and <clears throat> it's just one of those things that, you know, you just really can't do enough of, just being in, in communication with God, looking for that leadership, and in his word that uh, we get wisdom from there and pray wisely. Verse 9 again, verse 9 to 11 here now does, that's the substance of what Paul continues to pray about. And you, uh, matter of fact, in Colossians, I wasn't going to go there, but I am now... Um, <clears throat> In Colossians 1, 9, he starts on verse 3, we give thanks to God the Father for all of you, right? Since we heard of your faith. And he talks about their hope and their love. And he goes, uh, verse 9, he goes on, for this reason, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all the power according to his glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. So, I mean, again, that was Paul's heart. And these are the kind, you can read that in virtually every letter that Paul wrote. He reminds them how he's praying for them. And he shares with them, and by extension, us, those, those things he's been praying about. Okay, now, and uh, <clears throat> it's also, you know, Paul's bad pattern of teaching. This is what I'm praying about. This is what we need to do, what you need to do. Now, those things, those things that are laid out in these verses, 9 through 11, are, are sequential. In other words, each of these points build upon the foundation of the previous one. For example, uh, abounding in love in verse 9 will then hopefully should be added on and produce spiritual excellence in verse 10, producing spiritual integrity also in verse 10, and then the ultimate result in, our, in a life bearing the fruit of righteousness, that brings glory to God, verse 11. So this is, you can see it just kind of keeps building and building and building. But it starts with abounding still more and more in love. Let's look at that word love. Now the Greek word for love is agape, is the love which is Quite frankly, it, it is a communicable attribute of God. And scripture is uh, <clears throat> quite clear about that. We're in first, first John 4, 8, it says, God is love. That's, his, that's, a natu- that's one of the many attributes of God. Uh, the agape, or an agapeo, that's the noun and the verb, uh, describe a love that goes beyond emotion, although emotion is part of it, goes beyond sentiment, sentiment is part of it, but it's a love that acts. It's a love that gives. It's, it's a love that does things. It doesn't just, you know, talk, hey, I love you, mean it, and then nothing happens. No, 
It's, I like to call it, it's that John 3.16 kind of love, God's love. It's just for God so loved the world that what? He gave his only begotten son. It's a, it's a love that does things. It doesn't just talk, it acts. Now, the love in which we are to abound more and more in is, that, again, that same love that God has for his people. Right next door to, to uh, Philippians, let's look back at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. Just one in front of it here. And here's that love that he extended to uh, all of us here. Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 5. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince and the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love which, with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ by grace are you saved. That is love. And that's what, he, that's what he did for us. As a matter of fact, he, that same love was extended to his Old Testament saints as well, his people. Um, I've just kept up my notes here, but in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 to 9, just for an example, speaking about Israel, for you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, the Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than all the peoples, for you were the fewest of all the peoples. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your fathers, forefathers, the Lord brought you out, out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord our God, he is God, the faithful God who keeps his covenant and his loving kindness to a thousandth generation with those whom, who love him and keep his commandments. All right, see that love, again, that's the kind of love God has for all his people, whether Old Testament saint, New Testament saint, coming tribulation saints, <laughs> that love is, is shed upon them. If you're going to do a subject of love, I mean, it's, in this study, you can't do it without hearing from our Lord Jesus Christ himself. So I'd like to go back and look at some passages on that, from starting with Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22, beginning at verse 34. Matthew 22, 34. <clears throat> and here's one of those... Um, Another situation where Jesus is being confronted and opposed by his critics. Not an uncommon situation. All right? quite, quite typical. Matthew twenty-two thirty-four. 34, it says, But when the Pharisees heard that he had put the Sadducees to silence, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him. You notice, always testing him. They weren't asking him for... I need, I need some honest information. No, this was always, 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 always testing him. Okay? 
Teacher, which is the great commandment of the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your hearts and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. It's interesting. He asked, what is the great commandment? Jesus is going to give him two. And here's the second one. And verse 39 says, the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. That word depend on could be, it could be translated hung like a hook. On, on these two commandments, you can take the whole law and just hang it right on those two commandments. They support the whole thing. Think about it. Love God. Love man. And you know which one's first? Loving God. If we are not properly or really loving God, there's no way we're going to love our fellow man. That's just got to come first. A commitment to God. Remember, uh, that, this is that, uh, that agape love, that love that's committed to people, that's serving, it's giving. And if we don't serve God, if we don't give our uh, devotion to God, it's not going to spill over to man. But if we are, it will spill over to man. And that's the key. That's the key to everything. That's the key to any kind of ministry. Number one, commitment, love for God. Another, another portion, in move, as we move back toward Philippians, let's stop off at uh, John chapter 13, the Gospel of John chapter 13. Now, John 13, the situation is we're, we're at the, uh, <clears throat> Jesus and the disciples, as it, we're at the Passover supper here, and this is often called the, um, <clears throat> the, the upper room discourse, some call it the farewell discourse because, remember, this is uh, the Last Supper. After supper, he's going to go to the garden, be arrested, and then here comes the death, mockery of a trial and the cross. So 13, verse 30, we'll pick it up, verse, verse uh, 34, just 34 and 35. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another even as I have loved you that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. I want to stop and look at this for just a a few moments here. A new commandment I give to you. What was the old commandment? Love your neighbor as yourself. That's not being erased. It's being upgraded. The new commandment is, well, that's great and that's fine. And it's still the second of the greatest commandments as far as that question was answered. But now as we move forward, Jesus says to his disciples, a new commandment I give you. This is when you won't find this in the Old Testament. This is when I'm giving you that you love one another even as I have loved you. And again, by extension, it's speaking to us. And how Did Christ love us? The ultimate love. He came and died for us. He came and died for us. Keep moving. Same night, same upper room discourse, John chapter 14, verse 22. 
22 through 24, just, just a piece of this, this whole upper room discourse is, is truly magnificent. But um, verse 22, Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, what then has happened that you are going to disclose yourself to us, or when you're going to disclose yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered and said to him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my father will love him. And we, remember that's we, father and son, Jesus and father, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. And, he, <clears throat> and then on the, on the adverse of that, he goes, he who does not love me does not keep my words, and the word which, I, <clears throat> which you hear is not mine, but the father's who sent me. So in other words, this, this is the mark of a true believer, the mark of a true believer, if anyone loves me, he will keep my commandments. Keep my commandments. That's back to the two greatest commandments. First one is love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. How do you do that? If you love me, keep my commandments. It's just consistent, and that's the mark of the true believer. Again, one last stop, chapter 15 in, in, in John beginning verse 12, and once again, um, <clears throat> and again, this is the same night, reminding them over and over and over again, this is my commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that one would lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. Get that little connection there? You are my friends. No greater love has it than, than when would lay down his life for his friends. Verse 15, no longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his <clears throat> master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all things that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you, and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, that your fruit would, be, would remain, that wherever or excuse me, whatever, ask of the Father my name that you may give to you. This I command you, that you love one another. That's going to be so important, especially, just compare it to the next couple of verses. Here's another motivation for them. If the, verse 18 says, if the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If there were, if, 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 if you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. So again, it's a good reminder, especially in that day, the Apostles were told, hey, love one another, be committed to one another, and help one another, because you guys are just about to go out there and face some serious persecution, and that's real tough to do on your own. So you, they need to, and again, it's the same thing in a church. You know, a church, we've got to love one another, work with one another, move with one another, and the Lord will make it all work. Now, back to Philippians chapter 1, verse 9 to 11. 
verse 9, where it says, And this I pray. Again, in addition to Paul's thanks, verses 9 to that is Paul's prayer for them. And again, by extension to all of us. Okay? Now, as far as love goes, there's going to be seven points that are going to be brought out in these, these paragraphs. That was the introduction. Now, this is the message. Seven points brought out. One, the first point is the priority of love. The priority of love. We see that in verse 9. That, you, that your love may abound still more and more. Now we know by what we read in the previous uh, verses coming into this that the Philippians did in fact were a loving church. That, I mean, a lack of love was not their problem. They expressed that love to Paul by supporting him in ministry, both financially and spiritually by supporting they support him and we're going to see that as we get deeper into this letter that that was their that's what they did they were very committed to paul's ministry they showed him much love now paul is encouraging them here to keep to keep growing in love and you know it when he says more and more now in scripture rep the repetition is there is is there for emphasis remember when jesus uh when he would preach sometimes he'd say Verily, I'd say. When you say verily, that's like a, that's like a heads up, listen. And then sometimes, when there was something that really needed to be understood or heard, he would say, verily, verily, or truly, truly. This is that kind of a thing. More and more. You know, it's not, it, and Paul was trying to emphasize the fact that wherever we are in this attitude of love toward one another and, and or to God, that wherever we are, we should not be satisfied with that. He says, you need, to do, you need to increase in this love, abound in love more and more. And the, by emphasis, and still more, and still more. Never, never, never be satisfied with whatever level we think we're at. And again, we should always be striving to continue improvement. Don't be satisfied, if you will, with the status quo when it comes to love. Second point. Love needs to be fully developed. We see that in chapter 9 as well, where it says, uh, it says that your love may abound still more and more. How? In real knowledge and in all discernment. Okay, what does that mean? Well, real knowledge. Epignosis. From the word gnosis, meaning knowledge. Now, by adding the prefix, or some call it the intensive prefix, it raises that knowledge to a higher level, describing a more full knowledge, uh, an advanced knowledge, a higher knowledge, if you will. Not like, not like the Gnostics taught, not that kind of higher knowledge, but a, a just a greater understanding of, of things and why. Well, I found a good, good statement here by, and he has many, John MacArthur. He says, Quote, biblical love is not empty sentimentalism, but is anchored deeply in the truth of Scripture and regulated by it. And regulated by it. But at the same time, I want to say Paul is not advocating some cold, mechanical, emotionless love either, which is evidence, I think, in verses 7 and 8. Where, uh, like in verse 8, he says, For God is my witness how I long for you with, with the affection of Christ Jesus. No, so he's not saying that either. 
And what he's saying is, and what happens, another quote from another guy, William Hendrickson, another commentator I use, he goes, love, in other words, should be judicious. This keen discernment or, or perception born of experience is the ability of mind and heart to separate not only good from bad, but also the important from the unimportant. In each case, choosing the former and rejecting the latter. This is needed, this, this is indeed necessary. A person who possesses love but lacks discernment uh, <clears throat> may revel a great deal of eagerness and enthusiasm. He may donate to all kinds of causes. His motives may be worthy and his intentions honorable, yet he may be doing more harm than good. And such an individual may, may be misled doctrinally. In other words, it's like how many people out there you know, are just so eager and so want to move the gospel, move the gospel, and are donating to things that are actually working against the gospel because of something that they heard that sounds good, but didn't exercise the discernment to maybe dig down another layer and find out what, what is this outfit really all about? What are they really teaching? What are they, what are they really promoting? And there's a lot of charlatans out there, folks. And matter of fact, we get further into the, um, the letter, there's some warnings in Philippians. As in most of Paul's letters, there's always warnings, and they're like, watch it, watch it. There, there's, there's false doctrine being out there, false teachings being spread. Don't get caught up with it, and we definitely don't want to support it. But it's easy to do because, oh, they are slick. Some of these people are slick. The uh, TVs, the TBNs, full of them. <laughs> I mean, they're just, they're everywhere. Now, verse 10. And here's, and it, verse 10 adds to the idea of real knowledge and discernment. And discernment actually is talking about perception, having insight. And so, verse 10 says, like, uh, <clears throat> that your love, well, verse 9, that your love may abound more and more in real knowledge and in all discernment. Why? Well, verse 10, so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. Now, there's actually a lot there. Now, to approve things that are excellent. Third point, pursue what is excellent. That's the third point. Pursue what is excellent. Approve. Dokimazo, which means to examine, prove, or test. Well, what does that mean? Well, an example of that word is found in Luke 12. We don't need to turn. I've got it written down here. Um, Luke 12, 56, our Lord speaking to some of his uh, critics again. Uh, the first uh, two words will kind of cinch that one for you. You hypocrites. You know how to analyze the appearance of the earth and the sky, but do you not analyze this present time? Speaking of who you're criticizing, yet you've, you're not, you didn't analyze who, who I am, right? But the word <clears throat> dakamazo, which means pursue excellence, is uh, be, be analytical. Analyze, analyze. And then Luke 14, 19, another use of the word says... Uh, Another one, and this was in a parable. Another one said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I'm going to try them out. Please consider me excused. And of course the Lord did. But um, <clears throat> try them out. Prove them. You know, you get a team, you're going to hook it up to the pile. I want to prove that team, make sure they work. That's what that's talking about. 
And then things that are excellent or could be translated what is excellent, which basically, um, quite frankly, refers, which would refer to all of what God wants us to be. Let's look at Philippians 4, verses 8 and 9, when um, he starts wrapping up this letter. And he's coming to the conclusion. He'll, uh, and this kind of, he's, he's summarizing where this whole epistle is going to take us. And verses uh, and 8 and 9 says, Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, let your mind dwell on these things, the things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. Practice these things, and the God of peace shall be with you. See, that's where this is all going. Remember, this is the epistle, like, uh, it's called the epistle of joy. Well, definitely, the theme of joy is just woven all through here. But, um, again, love, like everything else, yes, there's emotion involved in it. And that's fine. Nobody wants them, you know, in Scripture, Again, we don't want to be some uh, um, adherence to some cold, dead orthodoxy. You know what I mean? We want, it's got to live. It's got to, it, it, this is the living word of God. And, and if we live up to it and we act upon it, I, I trust we won't be cold, dead people. That uh, we will, again, uh, exercise that biblical love that's based in truth and knowledge. Now, and where it says in verse, in, in verse 10... Uh, the second uh, phrase there, in order to be sincere and blameless, that in order to be, or could simply be translated, or so to be. And that's the goal, to be, okay? Um, In order to be, or to be, to be what? Well, again, it's signifying progression. And it's, um, the progression is that we're sincere and blameless. But we'll get to that in a minute. But, A quick recap of where we've come from. Again, love abounding more and more in real knowledge and discernment leads to approving those things that are excellent. And then excellence is going to lead us to personal integrity, which is our fourth point. Love's integrity. What does that mean? Well... In the New American Standard, it's the words are sincere and blameless. You may have another couple of words, but sincere means something that is tested as genuine. Tested as genuine. Okay, and that um, <clears throat> that carries the idea of being pure. It's speaking of purity, genuine, pure, sincere. Now. That it comes from a, a word that it's interesting word. The uh, it's it was a sunlight. Used in another word, it was it was a sun. What they call a sunlight test of pottery. So, well, how did that get in here? Well, you go in ancient Rome. Uh, fine pottery, being thin, sometimes had cracks. Okay, and shall we say less than honest dealers would take that fine pottery that got a bigger price than the regular stuff, right? Um, 
Well, you'd find the crack. And what they would do to those cracks, they would take a wax and they would put, fill, fill those little, just put wax in those cracks and get it all smoothed out. And then they would paint over it or glaze it or whatever they're going to do. And so one way to find out is uh, you, could take that, you could take that pottery and you just hold it up to the sun. And the sun would expose, even through the paint, it would show like little dark lines and streaks. Uh, you know, somebody's been fooling around in there. Somebody, there's that, and the wax would show up. It's okay. It would show up. It would be like, like dark lines. Would come. They'd, you'd find them out. As a matter of fact, um, reputable dealers in, in the Roman Empire would stamp their pottery sine sera which is Latin, meaning without wax. And our English word sincere, or sincerely, comes from that Latin origin, sine sera. Sincere. Okay? A little lesson in etymology this morning. (laughs) And so, and again, like a lot of our English words come from other words, Latin, Greek, Anglo-Saxon. Now the word blameless, what does the word blameless mean? Blameless literally means just not to stumble. And again, the fact that by seeking excellence, our, we would pass the sunlight test and we would be found blameless, not in our life, but actually we would be, um, <clears throat> not, we would not stumble, but Lord willing, we would not cause anyone else to stumble either. Okay? We would not cause anyone else to stumble as well. Again, But being people of integrity starts with those two greatest commandments identified by the Lord. Love God, therefore we would strive to live according to his word. And then love your neighbor as yourself. Again, in the church, we would work for spiritual betterment of our brothers and sisters in Christ. And also, in the world, we would want to share the gospel so they would hear the message of eternal life. That's the best way to love your neighbor out there as yourself is share the gospel that brings about eternal life. You know, it's like the... Anyway, we move to the fifth point, and that's love's perseverance. Love's perseverance. Love will persevere. How do we know that? Well, right at the end, that little phrase, right at the end... Uh, I'll just read verse 10 again. So that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until, or that could be translated for, the day of Christ. All right, now what is the day of Christ? That's kind of important. First of all, the day of Christ is not to be confused with the day of the Lord. Two totally different events. It's not the day of the Lord. Now, in most, and we'll start, in most instances where the day of the Lord is referenced refers to judgments associated with the second coming. All right? The day of the Lord is also used in reference to other judgments of God that have, most of them have already happened. All right? But we know the futuristic one. We, we, we have just mentioned In Ezekiel chapter 30, for example, the term day of the Lord is, refers to a judgment that it, it is an upcoming judgment that's going to happen to Egypt and her allies at the hand. Now, why I know it's not future? 
at the hands of Nebuchadnezzar, okay? It was future when Ezekiel wrote it, but it was very near future. But it was, it's past history from our perspectives here today. So when you see the day of the Lord, it always links with God's wrath, God's judgment. So keep that in mind. And in Zephaniah chapter 1, again, warns Judah of the impending judgment that was coming upon it by Babylon. Again, Nebuchadnezzar. All right, so, so there's just two examples. And again, the day of the Lord, when you say day of the Lord, think of a time of the outpouring of the wrath of God. Day of the Lord. Well, the day of Christ, quite frankly, is just the opposite. The day of Christ is just the opposite. It's that term and related terms, it's used uh, three times in Philippians. In verse 6, it's a little bit different. It says, until the day of Christ Jesus. Day of Christ, here in verse 10. And then later on in chapter 2, the day of Christ will be referred to again. Right here in Philippians. Now, it's also used uh, a very, it's all by, by way, it's all very much part of Pauline literature. It's all in Paul's epistles. You find it here, and quite frankly, First and Second Corinthians, where that term is used. Now, in First Corinthians, Paul uses the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, referring to the same thing. We're going to look at some of those. First Corinthians one eight and Second Corinthians one fourteen, and Paul also refers to that same day as the day of the Lord Jesus. Now, what do all those days have in common? Well. All of these references, again, have direct application to the church, to the church. The day of Christ is, is when Jesus returns to take his church home, as described in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 13, 18, which we affectionately, and maybe not so affectionately, that is what is commonly called the rapture, the, which is a term that comes out of the Latin, rapturo, it came out of the <clears throat> I just lost it. The um, Latin Vulgate came out of the Latin Vulgate, and it's kind of a carryover. Um, and the rapture is when the church is taken up. That is actually the day of Christ and all that follows. That's the day of Christ as opposed to the day of Lord. Now, that day of Christ, what happens there? Well, that's when um, shortly after that, that day, we are judged according to our works. Let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And that's why we keep going. um, We'll just read that. You read in Philippians, we're kept until that day. Well, why until that day or for that day? Because when that day comes, we're home. (laughs) We're home. We're not kept anymore. We're there. Okay, we're there. So... And so what happens? Well, one of the things that happens is 1 Corinthians 3, 12 to 15. And when, when we are judged, this is again referring to the church. Now, if any man builds upon the foundation with gold, silver, and precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each man's work will become evident, for the day will, sh- will show it. Because it is to be revealed with fire, and, f- and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's works. If any man's work which he has built upon it remains, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but 
he himself shall be saved, yet so as through fire. Now, what this is telling us, then, we are going to be judged for rewards. And being judged so, uh, <clears throat> and because of that, we will receive, you may not realize that, but we are all going to receive victor's crowns come judgment day. Some may be a little more sparkly than others. I'm not sure how that's going to work out, to be totally honest with you. All we know, it's going to happen, right? It's going to happen. Look at 2 Timothy 4, uh, 7 to 8. Um, 2 Timothy. Now, this is Paul's very last letter that he wrote. He was on death row when he wrote 2 Timothy. Um, I know Titus and Philemon fall in behind it, but actually they were written sooner. Um, but 2 Timothy Four, seven and eight says this. You know what? I just pray that all of us here could say this on our deathbed right here. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. But don't miss this next phrase. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. All of those who are held and kept until or for the day of Christ. That's where, this, that's where we're heading. That, as believers, is our future. And again, just thinking back to... Um, like many of the works described there as wood, hay, straw, um, <clears throat> could very well be those, back to uh, Philippians, could be those described as the ones that perhaps, you know, the ones that, we, that maybe we did with less than a full knowledge. We didn't apply enough discernment. We meant well. We meant well, but... As far as reward, nothing, you know. But again, when we're up there, it's not going to be a sad time. And say, so, well, what about our sin? You know, you know, people say, well, you're a judge, you know, that we're sin and all that. Stuff. No, we're not going to be judged for sin. Our sin has already been judged. Our sin was judged on Calvary. Remember Second um, Corinthians five twenty one. Christ, who knew no sin, became sin. That's where our sins were judged. That's where, the, that's where our sins, the wrath of God, was poured out upon. Our sins, Jesus took, and, God, and he took our wrath as well. That's why we, when, when the day of Christ comes, it's a day that we are rewarded, and all the glory goes to him. And, that's, and that's, what, that's what Paul is talking about here. Like that we should, and, and that should strive us more. That shouldn't, that shouldn't cause us to be lazy. Oh, we got this thing nailed. That's, that's, that's not what Paul's saying. That's not what I, don't, I want to even insinuate at all because he did it all. You know, because he did it all um, on the human love. Don't you think we owe him something? You know, we, should, we owe him a good service. We owe him a good life. We, we owe more than we could ever repay anyhow. But you see what I'm saying? That's why, uh, you know, we, we want to rem remind ourselves of these things. Let's look at first, verse 11. 
where it says, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God, which is the sixth point, love's destiny. We kind of already hinted on it, but the destiny and the destiny one. Look at having been. See the word having been? Looking back. See? But we're looking back in reference to the day of Christ. Looking back, being at the day of Christ. Looking back, saying, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ. Okay? Looking back, that's it. Our future then is to stand before our God and Savior in righteousness. No sin, none of that. It's all gone. It's all gone. I mean, what a glorious day that's going to be. What a glorious day that's going to be. And it's just going to get more magnificent as we just watch things unfold. I mean, we're going to look at it some a little later, but you just see through, um, you know, just look at that. The turmoil here, and uh, you just read what little sparks of visions of heaven we get, like in Isaiah 6 and, um, you know, Revelation 4 and 5, the various scenes in heaven with thunder and lightning, but it's glorious. Nobody's scared. (laughs) It's just a beautiful thing, and we're going to be there witnessing all this. We're going to be there. And William Hendrickson, again, said, had a good word here. He goes, you know, the whole of life must be a preparation for that great day. For it is then that the true character of every man's life will be revealed and everyone will be judged according to his work. But again, the good things is what's going to come out. The good. And I just, I just you know, pray for myself and everyone here that, you know, that we would be found with much gold, silver, and precious stones. That we would have much to show for ourselves as his servants here on earth. You know, um, which leads us now to the seventh and final point, love's ultimate goal. And love's ultimate goal is to bring glory to God who made it all happen. To bring glory to God who made it all happen. Uh, apart from his work in our salvation, um, we wouldn't be here at all. If it was left up to our works, we wouldn't, it wouldn't cut. Remember God's standard is perfection. Sorry, one sin, one time, we're out. So I think that would, I think it's safe to say without being judgmental, that would leave us all out. That would leave us out. We've all probably committed at least one sin in our life. Okay, that, that violates the standard of God, perfection. So therefore, every human being, except Christ himself, needs a savior. Now, The fruit of righteousness, that fruit of righteousness, comes from Christ's, remember it says, it says here, which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory of God. It comes from from him. And um, let's go back to 2 Corinthians. That's one that we've had in recent memory. 2 Corinthians 5.21. And just just spend a, a few minutes there looking at that because it is so jam packed with information. A lot in one verse. 521. 
we have the Father and the Son in view in this passage. He, that's the Father, made him, that's Christ, who knew no sin to be sin, or it could be translated, who knew no sin, sin, on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him, in Jesus. Okay? That's why, you know, we'll go back and reread 11, but that's the whole story. That's why we stand in righteousness, because he, Jesus Christ, who knew no sin, became sin by taking our sin on himself. He literally became our sin. And in that state on the cross, the Father then poured out his wrath for that sin on him in our place. That's why the atonement of Christ is is called a substitutionary atonement because he took our place. We're not even fit to die for ourselves. (laughs) We can't do it. He, being that perfect Lamb of God, could. And, praise God, did. And then we move on through it on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God. And sometimes the wording, we might become, kind of sounds like there's little doubt in it. No, that we would become, would probably be a better way to say this, that we would become the righteousness of God. And that's it, because... While he took our sin and the Father and imputed it to Christ, Christ takes his righteousness and imputes it to us. That's why we can stand there in a state of righteousness because our righteousness is not our own. Our righteousness is Christ's on us. See, that's how it happens. That is, that's that the doctrine of imputation is one of those things. Oh, theology. Don't worry. Theology is a good friend. Theology is your friend. Do not be afraid of it. <laughs> you know, theology is good. Think that. Go home. Theology good. Theology good. It's not, there's nothing wrong with that. It, we, we need to know this stuff. I mean, a greater knowledge of God is going to give us a much greater appreciation and love for him when we understand really what he did for us. I mean, it's an amazing thing. It's an amazing thing. Again, you know, uh, that's why we, we, because of what he did, we stand there in righteousness, and that's why our life needs to uh, mirror that, because after all, we are, Ephesians 10, we are his workmanship. Okay? Created in him to do good works, and that's what we should do. And finally, in closing, I'd like to um, look at Revelation chapter 4. And I want to get a, a look, spend a few minutes there in, in Revelation chapter 4. Verses uh, 1 through 11. Just kind of walk through very slowly and uh, just get a picture and... Uh, Let's see where we're going to wind up, okay, at the day of Christ. After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in the heaven, and the first voice which I heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. That's after the meeting of the events on earth. He said, Well, 
Immediately I was in the spirit, and behold, a a throne was standing in heaven, and one sitting on the throne. And he who was sitting on the throne was like a jasper stone, and a sardis in appearance, and there were a rainbow around the throne like an emerald in appearance. And around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and upon the the thrones I saw twenty-four elders sitting and clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. As you read through this, I'm confident in the context of the New Testament teaching and old, these folks, these 24 elders in white garments with crowns on their heads, and these are not king's crowns, these are victor's crowns, I believe that those 24 elders represent the church in heaven. And from the throne proceeded flashes of lightnings and sounds and peals of thunders. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And in the center around the throne was four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first creature, these are magnificent angelic beings. And this is, it's very close, read on your own Isaiah 6, 1, where Isaiah had a vision of similar things. And it's, it's amazing. Um, and verse 8 and the four living creatures each of them having six wings full of eyes and around within day and night they do and day and night these four do not cease to say holy 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 is the Lord God the Almighty who was and who is and who is to come and when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne to him who lives forever and ever The 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power for you did create all things and because of your will they existed and were created. You go into chapter 5 and the same thing is going on and I believe what's happening here is those 24 elders and there's good reason to say this represent the church itself is because our crowns are not rewards for anything we've done although it's, it is but it's because of Christ and it's like we take those crowns and throw them at the feet of God as worship from us back to him for what he's done for us and I mean it's going to be a glorious time up there folks and um, it's one that we work for, and, and don't you want to have something meaningful to give back to them when that day comes? I do. I do. And again, that's, again, that's my prayer for all of us. All of us. Love the brethren. Stay focused. Keep moving forward. We've got this thing because God's got this thing. So just stay Tune to him, keep in the word, and let's close in a word of prayer. Our Father God, we, we come to you this morning, Lord, in, in thanksgiving. We thank you for the salvation you've given to us, and we just pray, Lord, that as we live our lives, that we live them for you, not for us or anybody else. And, and Father, may each and every one of us recommit ourselves to loving you further, loving you more and more, 
and also loving each other more and more. May we be there for each other. May we, again, corporately and individually worship you more and more. In Jesus' name, amen.